We're looking right now at interphase. The cell is going to go through something monumental, but not yet. Why? Because it's got to prepare. Hordes of teeny moving parts have to organize and replicate and relocate, all making sure that everything is set, so that when the mitotic phase hits, instead of a disaster, we get new life. Two new beautiful cells. We're looking right now at interphase. Not on a cellular level, but on the level of our spirits and our lives. While it may not seem like it when we're going through the chaos and change, the same wisdom that replicates DNA prepares every little part of our hearts and minds so that we come through it with new life. And it just so happens to tell us about that process using some very weird imagery. What can animals full of eyes, a sea of glass, and bowing elders tell us about divine care and how it acts and prepares for every bit of turbulence we go through? Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life, where we're going to be looking today at the secrets of uh, Revelation, the meaning of the book of Revelation, the throne room, and uh, I'm going to take you through that. My name is Curtis Childs, and I'm the host, as always, uh, and so yeah, today we're going to be looking at stuff from book of Revelation, chapter 4, and I've got to justify to you why we're spending a, a good hour of Swedenborg and Life, a good hour of your life looking at this very strange stuff in the strangest book in a text full of strange things, the Bible. So why, why are we doing that? Well, what we're going to assert to you today is that actually all this stuff that seems bizarre or outdated or just obscure is telling us something valuable and potent about uh, our own lives and about this spiritual history that led up to how we now think and feel and experience life. So isn't that worth checking out a little bit? And the way that we get from this stuff to what I was just talking about is by understanding the nature, according to Swedenborg, of Scripture itself, that it is multi-layered. So just because you have a phrase here, a door standing open in heaven, there's actually a second and a third and even a fourth meaning to what it is, and it's symbolic. So it's talking about doors and uh, animals and thrones, but it's that those are analogs for things that we're encountering even more often than we encounter actual thrones. So that's what we're going to be looking at, and we are making our way through the most obscure book, potentially in the Bible, the book of Revelation, looking at what what are the secrets in it and what do they tell us. And you, If you've watched the other two in our series, we're very flattered, and you'll remember that we're moving along the Revelation game board that we had the see, the vision of Jesus Christ that John saw. We had these seven letters to the seven churches, and now here we are at the throne room. And in the throne room, we're going to be looking essentially about preparation, change, and judgment. And you might be saying to yourself, ah, judgment, I don't like judgment. Uh, we there's a, there's a pushback in culture about judgment. Don't judge me. Don't be so judgmental. How can you judge someone else? You don't know what they're going through. But here we are going to be going on and on about judgment. And we're gonna, I'm going to assert to you that that's actually good, a good thing. Because the way that Swedenborg defines judgment, as in the last judgment or, or, or divine judgment, it's actually something closer to this to the, the metaphase in, in cellular division that we were talking about. Judgment is a moving and a reorganizing. 
And in that case, it's a thing that's necessary for anything to progress. And so when we come up against a judgment, I actually want to say we're glad that it happens because it's the way that we progress from one thing to the next. And we're going to be talking about exactly what I mean as we go forward. And we're actually going to, you're going to be getting multiple layers of judgments explained to you because Swedenborg says that there are judgments that happen on a collective level. Uh, this would include the last judgment. Maybe you've heard of it, and we asserted in another show uh, that, that Swedenborg asserted <laughs> that the last judgment already happened, and it happened not in the physical world, but it happened in the spiritual world. Take a look at that episode if you want some background to where we'll be going forward from now, but suffice to say, the last judgment spiritual event took place, and we're going to look today at a little bit of what the preparation was for that, but also there's a personal level to judgment. Swedenborg says that what the human race went through in the last judgment, which was one of a series of judgments, by the way, uh, we go through at death, at, and also when we connect to the divine, which can be the same time or can be at separate times, but even down to each individual event. Like we said in the beginning, cells, uh, every single one before it divides, has this judgment or sorting period that allow this safe division. The m- primary message I hope you come away with today is that there's a method to the madness. That even though it seems like life is chaos, and it seems like nobody's taking care of anything, no one's looking out for anything, things just happen, it's random, it's arbitrary, it's devastating, that actually there is with us the, the most loving, wise being you could possibly imagine, carefully making sure that everything is set in its order so that even though we go through things, in the end, it all turns out well. So how can we possibly get to something that comforting, starting at weird stuff like this throne with a green rainbow? Well, we're going to start into it in part one. Every change is prepared for. And I'm talking about in every level of life. We see things in in biological organisms. There's all kinds of preparation before anything happens. We look at cell division, birth, uh, next phases of growth, development, everything. There's even, even you think about winter. Trees prepare for winter by sucking all that stuff back into the tree. The leaves change color because by stuff, I think I mean chlorophyll. And the leaves change. The tree prepares for winter. There's always preparation. But it's not just physical living things. There's also preparation within the spirits of human beings. There's preparations that go on in the spiritual world uh, at a large scale. Every change is prepared for, and we get this concept from Apocalypse Explained 258. This is Swedenborg's book. Uh, You can check it out for yourself if you want to read the numbers around this one. Where we're picking up, he says, the subject now treated of in this fourth chapter of Revelation, which remember is the chapter we're looking at tonight, is the arrangement of all things, especially in the heavens before judgment. So actually God rearranging heaven, just like the little parts of a cell. It should be known that before any change takes place, everything is prearranged and prepared for future events. For the future event. For all things are foreseen by the Lord, and according to this foresight are disposed and provided for. And look at this sentence here. I take that to read that every single little change... Any change in your life, no matter how small, no matter how large, God is foreseeing it. Not that God is causing every single thing, but God understands what's coming down the line and is putting things in order, preparing for something as little as, oh, I got up, my, oh, today I, my shoes, the bottom fell off my shoes. I'm thinking of this on the fly, believe it or not. And so now I need to change to new shoes, to like new job, new whatever. 
you know, new, new life. That these huge changes that we're going to go through and the small ones, everything is prepared for on these successively smaller and bigger levels. So we're going to be looking at the last judgment according to Swedenborg, which, is, which was this huge reorganization of the way heaven is, of the way that hell is, of the way that the human race uh, thinks and feels because of its connection to the spiritual world. So on that macro level, all the way down to the micro, the little changes that go on in our own individual lives. And it's okay to feel like there's no preparation before the stuff in my life. I can tell. I mean, my life is, is total chaos, because that's the way that it seems, and that's that's not just a coincidence, that's actually the, the it's, it's part of the nature of it. We did a show called Why Spiritual Things Are, Why Are Spiritual Things Hard to Believe, where we looked at how we have a level of our mind that is physical and rational, and it, it cannot see past the optical illusions caused by the physical world. And as such, it is opposed to belief that there's anything spiritual running in it, and it's very hard for it to see those patterns. Uh, usually, we can't see the operation of the divine in this preparation uh, for us, even if it's always going on. However, there are times when we can catch a glimpse at a higher level, and that's where our story begins today in Revelation 1. This is the rising up of John, who is having this vision, to this higher level. Now, I'm going to prepare you. We're about to go see a quote read from Revelation 4.1, and then you're going to get a summary of of what Swedenborg says the internal meaning of that part is. It's a summary. It's not actually Swedenborg's words. It's us summarizing it together, and there's a good reason. How much text do you think Swedenborg uses to explain the meaning of a single verse in Revelation? Did you think it was this much? Because you're right. So he, there are multiple levels of meaning. There is so much that goes into it. It ties in with all these other parts. What we've done is synthesize all that per verse into a, a short little explanation for you. We'll leave the numbers at the bottom, so if you want to go dig in there, read everything he has to say about it, you're welcome to. Without further ado, this is the story of Revelation 4.1 and of somebody rising up to the level at which we can actually see these spiritual processes going on. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice that I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. John's spiritual sight was opened, and he was invited to come up to a higher level of awareness. He would first be shown, in symbolic imagery, that heaven would be carefully arranged, prepared, and put into order before the Last Judgment. So we have this arrangement and this putting into order being foreshadowed, but also, why is there a door in heaven? (laughs) <laughs> like, okay, we've got, yeah, you want to come through, you got to come through this door. Like, we got that, just got that installed. Oh, its hinges are a little creaky. Oil, like, why is there a door? But the door is a correspondence. Everything in this story is symbolic. And actually, the door, uh, you know, this, this idea of a barrier between the mindset that we're in now and the mindset it takes to see things from a heavenly perspective, that applies to this vision, but also applies to our own minds. And we have our own little door to prove it. Well, it's just, you know, it's a door. I don't know if it proves the concept, but it illustrates it because we have certain ways we think about life, certain things that we believe, and certain things we're open to believing and certain advice we'll take and won't take. And if we're locked in, that door is shut. 
if we're saying this, this is what my the physical senses seem to be telling me. Uh, I'm not going to give the time of day to the idea that there's anything bigger beyond this or higher beyond it. The door stays locked. But if we open it, take the time to open the door in the mind. That's when we first let in the the potential that there's something bigger and and higher out there. We have to make that little door opening uh, gesture in our own self before we can rise to this level that John was doing. So everything that he's doing, we do on our own little level as well. And we're going to be looking now. So he's he's got that door, right? He's, he's there's a door in heaven. He hears a voice. He's it's showing that hey, there's going to be some preparation happening. But next we meet the only character capable of making these judgments and doing these preparations, and that's in Revelation 4, too. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Spiritual sight allows a view of heaven. The last judgment was coming, and the Lord would act as the one and only judge. Okay, spoiler alert, that the one is God, and God is the only one who can make these judgments. Because if you think about just going back to our cell example, the complexity required, I mean, you know, in being able to divide a cell and get everything in its proper arrangement, physically, if, if I suddenly had the levers and the controls on, okay, divide this cell, it would be a mess. It'd be goop. It'd be a lost cell. And similarly, the things in our spirits, and certainly on the largest scale, the rearranging of heaven and the psyche and everything like that, that's complicated stuff. And actually, it's so complex that only God can do it. Only God can make those judgments. And those also being not just a property of God's wisdom, but also God's love. That You can't go in and mess with you know, the deeper levels of human minds without this intent to help them and, and to look out for their eternal welfare. And this is something that only God really has. So it's applicable both on the big level and the small level. However, God's sitting there on the throne, but but he has accessories. And one of them is this green band that you see up here. And even that has a little bit of meaning. So let's take a look at what's that doing there and, and what's it all about. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. In the coming judgment, the Lord would operate from divine wisdom and love, which would flow through heaven and out to the world of spirits. So this rainbow that appeared around was part of this a uh, whole ensemble around God that would show where this judgment was coming from uh, that would affect heaven in this case and the world of spirits and hell, but also affects us in each little. Now, remember, we're talking about judgment, which we said we have a bad association with that, but think about the phrase good judgment. Does anyone have a bad association with that? No, you're happy if if you have to hand over something of great importance to someone, you're happy if they have good judgment. If you've just chosen someone to lead the project you're working on, good judgment is something you feel very good about them having. God is good judgment. That God is the wisdom to do this. Uh, and so there's this appearance of, hey, this is where the judgment has to come from, and this is why. But then this rainbow, right? So why why is it there, and what could it mean in our particular 
lives. Let's look a little more closely at the picture of God as God is depicted in this. So you have the Lord who is the only one with enough love and forgiveness to judge our hearts and intentions. Remember, judge meaning reorganize, uh, set on the right path. Uh, And so even, uh, of course, other people don't really know enough to to judge or to set course for us, and even we don't know enough for ourselves. We we don't know the deepest recesses of who we are, why we're doing things. We have guesses, and but it, if you're like me, there's times when I feel like I I get who I am and I'm in control of this ship, and there's other times when I'm just being pulled along, or or I was totally wrong about something. So you never know, right? So only God, and we think we would be the one really looking out for our own welfare, but you know. God is love. God is divine love and actually cares about our happiness more than we do. So this is, trust me, this is a good person to have filling that position. But God comes with accessories. We have the throne, and it's not just to make an impression. All these details have meaning. Swedenborg says the throne symbolizes divine truth that's used for judgment because it can shine a light on what's really going on in our hearts, that it's not just God arbitrarily making decisions. There is this divine truth, which is the structure, uh, one of the two fundamental parts of the structure of reality, and this being sort of the outward expression of things. God, through, through the deepest knowledge that exists, can know exactly what's going on inside of us. But beyond that, God's got clothes. Why does God need clothes? Well, these, this, is, this is a store, a symbolic story, and those clothes symbolize something, particularly their colors, that red and white reflect the two primary elements I was just referring to, the love and wisdom that the Lord operates from and with. Because again, like I said, it's not enough just to know what you're doing. You've got to love the people you're doing it for if you're going to have any business doing something like a judgment. And then finally, we get to this thing that I've been yammering about, the emerald rainbow, the earthly level of our minds and lives. The Lord's loving discernment extends even to the earthly level of appearances, which is often flawed and confused. So that rainbow, according to Swedenborg, why it was bothered to be included in this whole thing is that it's a symbol of how there's all this love and all this wisdom coming out of God, radiating out, and it even comes out in the the level where we are, the outermost, the physical level, even if that level seems messed up, there's that same operation in there. It's, it's sometimes hidden from our eyes. So that's the story of the green rainbow. However, I mean, that's so, I mean that's an okay explanation, but it doesn't explain all the details. Like, why is it green? I guess, you know, right? Earth is green, or trees are green. Is that why? Well, I I think it has to do with the nature of the symbolism of the color green. And then we're going to do a show in a couple of weeks about the symbolism of colors overall. But here's a little uh, clip from Swedenborg. This is Apocalypse Revealed 232, where he talks about the ways in which God's love and wisdom is, are received by different levels of humanity and, uh, you know, from heaven to lower heaven to earth, and how actually different colors embody the characteristics of that reception on each level. So here's what he had to say. The divine atmosphere which surrounds the Lord emanates from both his divine love and divine wisdom together. And when that atmosphere is represented in the heavens, it appears in the celestial kingdom red like a ruby, in the spiritual kingdom blue like lapis lazuli, and in the natural kingdom green like an emerald. 
everywhere with an indescribable splendor and radiance. So it matters. All the colors mean something, and it's not that God is changing. It's that the reception is changing, which is fine. People receive it in different ways. It's all part of an important continuum. Uh, So that green rainbow is showing that, hey, I'm there with you, even in the stuff where it doesn't seem like I am. I'm right there with you on the level where you live your day-to-day life. It's not that I'm up in the clouds. I'm here with you. So we met this setting. I mean, really, God is a character, but but God's everywhere. So we're just, right now we've got this setting. We're in a throne room in heaven. Now this next section, we're going to meet the characters, the, alt, the other characters, the supporting cast, I guess I could say, that make this vision really start to pop. So let's look at it in part two. So we're going to introduce, there's other people there. It could just be this is the story of John meeting God, and and it's great, and and they have a a good chat, and then it's over. But there's other stuff going on there. There's even other people around, and why it's all got meaning, all the details. So let's move on to verse 4, where we meet a group of elders. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. All of the people, the ideas, and the feelings in the higher heavens were carefully organized around the Lord's central love and wisdom to prepare for the Last Judgment. Heaven was equipped with divine truth from the Word and with wisdom springing from love. This way, heaven would be able to cooperate with the Lord's divine love and wisdom during the Judgment. Now remember, and I know it's confusing, that we are simultaneously talking about this preparation that happened for the Last Judgment, which was, according to Swedenborg, this big spiritual reorganizing event, and then we're also talking about how there's that same process going on in our own little lives here. So there, that's talking about how heaven was being prepared for this Last Judgment, or this moving around of heaven and hell to rebalance everything, and in it, there was this preparation that heaven was given the right tools. It just doesn't happen automatically. Everything is through means. And that those elders were a symbol of this preparation, and specifically the the, the um, conditioning of heaven and the people in heaven to receive this love and wisdom and to work with what God was doing. Because remember, in the first section, we we're going on and on about how only God can do this, only God can make these judgments, but we can, we can make ourselves assets to the process. You know, we can cooperate with the process, and this is the story of heaven doing that. But let's look at these elders uh, as how they would show up in our own lives. I know that, you know, I don't necessarily have a group of elders that I hang out with, but they are symbolic of something that incurs in all of us. So let's take a look at their individual elements here. So you have the elders, and they themselves are symbolic. This, the elders are a symbol of how the Lord takes all the higher concepts and feeling of faith in our hearts. So these elders are these, you know, the elder things in you, the wisest, uh, you know, most important things in you. The higher concepts and feeling of faith in our hearts and organizes them around his central love and wisdom, providing a mindset that can get through the change. So again, this is about, uh, it's about preparation and it's about not being sideswiped by what's happening, but actually coming through it 
stronger, even if it doesn't seem like that in the beginning. And it's all about organizing around what's divine, around the highest thing that we know, our connection to God, all the the, the highest thing, the, the second highest things in our minds, looking inward towards that, forming this sort of matrix. But the elders, again, they've got accessories, and the accessories have meaning. They have these white robes on. They need their clothes too, and these, in this sense, these deep feelings of faith are clothed and equipped with true spiritual ideas, because you can't have these highest feelings and ideals without particular concepts that are supporting them in our mind, because if you have something, oh, this is something I really believe in that's really good, but you don't have sort of the the uh, steps to why it makes sense and why you believe it, it'll it'll fall away. It'll be, you know, it's not closed, so it's not protected, and it won't last. So these white robes symbolize the best truths that we have, the best, best ideas that we have supporting these higher concepts. You with me so far? Great. Uh, so then we've got these crowns on the head. The higher level of our mind can be crowned with heavenly wisdom from God that is based on love. So again, this is a symbol of God setting in order and setting uh, the best things in our mind to, to uh, govern and, and uh, wisely assign duties to everything else in our mind. And then finally, we have the thrones that they're sitting on. And these, again, it's not just that they're thinking, oh, God has a throne, I got to get a throne too. But this is a symbol of how from this deeper awareness, we'll be able to participate in the realizations that the Lord's judgment will reveal about our lives. Because it's all about this cooperation that even in the highest heaven, you get there, according to Swedenborg, when you're an angel and everything like that, uh, it's not like you drop away from uh, being an independent person, an independent thing. Um, so what we have is this sense of autonomy, and that never leaves us, even if we are yeah, as evolved as you can get. It's still, there's a, a level of voluntary, voluntarism. You know, we're, we are doing it of our own volition. So there's this cooperation that God is never going to fully make us a puppet, you know, is never going to force us to do things. We still have to work from what feels like our own to do it. And that's what the symbol is. Symbol of that throne is like we have to work to rule our own little patch of territory, even if the power is coming from the Lord. Right? That's so that's the elders. It's a symbol of us being aligned to work with the government of God to get good things done. But it's not just the elders that are hanging out. There's and these are I mean, they're not like character characters like people, but they're they're meaningful objects. Okay. We've got ourselves some lightning and some lamps and some other things. So let's take a look at Revelation four or five. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The Lord's divine judgment flows out, providing enlightenment, perception, instruction, and understanding. This will result in the beginning of a new heaven, with a new kind of heavenly mindset, and a corresponding new church or mindset on earth. Both mindsets will be open to God's wisdom. Okay, this is cool. So work with me here. We've got these these things, this outpouring from the throne of God. We've got 
the, the, the lightning. We've also got these lamps, and then we're coming up. I'm going to spoil it for you. We're going to have this C that's happening, and they all go together. So I got to explain them as pieces, then we'll explain how they look as a bigger picture. Let's take a look at this. You know, this is not just any throne that God is sitting on. It's got, like, features. It's got lightning, and it's got thunder and all this stuff. So let's take a look at them individually. Uh, the throne, the, the the Lord is sitting on, as we were saying before, the Lord's divine judgment or discernment. That's the power that the Lord has. A throne is a symbol of power. But then you've got all of this stuff that's emanating from it, lightning, thunder, voices. These are the things that, that God is revealing and pushing out this highest wisdom that leads to personal enlightenment, learning, and new understanding from God that can come as we go through change. And isn't that what gets you through change to a new place is this uh, ability to understand life in a new way because of what we've been through. So that is the symbol. So we've got that. We've got the the stuff coming out. But then there's also these lamps that we were talking about. So let's think about a lamp in general, first of all. Swedenborg is saying that, you know, we got ourselves a little lamp here, and it is according to what he wrote about the internal sense, these seven lamps of fire were, all, on a personal level, all of our affection and willingness for seeing the truth rooting, rooted in a living and living a good life. Because what is a lamp? You know, we didn't light this one, or, you know, logistical reasons, but a lamp is something that you just need to touch once with some fire, and then it will burn and burn and burn. And this is like a mindset that hears these things coming out of the divine and is able to take them in and use that to light their own life with it. So you have this ongoing, this reception of the things coming from God, and not just like a momentary or quick burning out, but this is like, oh, you gave me this fire, and now I'm going to light my whole life with it. And since I've been going on and on about the lamps, you might not have remembered that we were actually in that same verse. There was just thrown in at the end seven spirits, the seven spirits of God. And Swedenborg says that that means all the life of the Lord's wisdom, which powers the act of goodness in our lives. Seven being a number that means totality, means all. It's also, uh, according to Swedenborg, a very holy number. So that's just showing that we can be receiving all of this that all this life upgrade, mental upgrade that God offers to us. And this is talking about the creation of a new level of heaven in this in the last judgment larger sense. Swedenborg actually says that there was a whole new layer of heaven created which served to push hell back and keep people who had kind of been trying to be, if, if you want the weird details, they were trying to be you know, look like they were good people, but interiorly they had shady motives, and they were kind of clogging up the first levels of heaven because they sort of seemed like they belonged there, but deep down they didn't, and they were pulling hell up into heaven. So this new level allowed people who were kind of caught in the fray there to have a place to stay, and it totally rearranged everything. Uh, And these lamps are this symbol of the mindset in a new heaven that's allowing people to, to absorb the truths of what Swedenborg would call the new church and, and people on earth to do the same. But there's another, this, this third of the trifecta that I was talking about is this sea of glass that appears, at, or, or it was always there, but it just appears in the narrative now at the foot of the throne. So let's hear Revelation 4, 6 about that. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The Lord established a new lower level of heaven formed of people who have general religious knowledge taken from the literal text of the word. 
This would be a new link in the connection between the Creator and Earth. And the Lord provided the Word as protection for the higher heavens, so they would be safe during the Last Judgment. So the lamps are this reception of all the higher knowledge and truth, this, this love coming in. It's, you know, this is something I'm going to live my life by. But then there's this sea, which is sort of this other lower, more external level uh, where you have um, this reception of general, like I get what it's like to be a good person. I'm not going in to all of the details of all the higher knowledge. And so we've got this little C here and I'll return to that in just a moment and show you what it means. But first of all, I feel like we've got to talk about why why a C? Why does a C symbolize that in the first place? And it has to do with the importance of what Swedenborg called atmospheres in the spiritual world, which seems to be sort of a blanket term he uses to describe different states of liquid. Uh, uh, you know, obviously a spiritual a correspondence of liquid, but but it seems like it's air or water or something, and that's a reflection of the mindset that people are in. So, sounds strange? I'll let him further confuse us in Apocalypse Revealed 238. Atmospheres are seen in the spiritual world, and also bodies of water, as in our world. Ethereal atmospheres, seemingly where angels of the highest heaven dwell, airy atmospheres, seemingly where angels of the intermediate heaven dwell, and watery ones, seemingly where angels of the lowest heaven dwell. These watery atmospheres, moreover, are seas that are seen at the borders of heaven, and the inhabitants there are people who possess general truths taken from the literal sense of the word. Since the one sitting on the throne means the Lord, and since the seven lamps which are the seven spirits of God before the throne mean a new church which will possess divine truth from the Lord, it is apparent that the sea of glass that was before the throne means the church with people who are at its peripheries. Seas at the borders of the heavens are something I have been granted to see, and it has been given to me to speak with inhabitants there, and so to learn the truth of this matter through personal experience. The inhabitants appeared to me to be living in a sea, but they said they did not live in a sea, but in an atmosphere. It was apparent to me from this that a sea is an appearance of the divine truth emanating from the Lord in its terminal expressions. The spiritual world is weird. Isn't that why we take the time to learn about it? He's saying, it seemed like like I was seeing people, and to, from my perspective as Swedenborg, I looked to me like they were living under under the sea. You know, they're living in the water. But they said to me when I talked to them, what are you talking about? We're not living in the sea. We, we are living in the air like everyone else. But the reason I was seeing them as living in the sea before is because it's a representation of the kind of level of truth that they're in. That's it, man. The spiritual world is super symbolic, and that's that's why our dreams are like they are. It's kind of echoes of that, This that, that we're being taught about the way things really are at their deep essence by how they appear, which is the contrary of this world, where something can appear some, a certain way and be the opposite uh, at its true character. Either way, we, let's focus on that sea of glass and how this could apply in our own life. So again, we saw it. Let's go back to it. We have this little sea here. This is the actual sea of glass. And Swedenborg says it has a meaning 
that potentially applies to our own lives as well. So a sea of glass is all the true facts in our earthly memory, which the Lord can arrange and make translucent, allowing heavenly love and wisdom from God to shine through and illuminate them. So it's sort of the outermost level of illumination. It's taking the things that aren't necessarily spiritual on their own, but organizing them and letting the higher things shine through them. Now, again, we, we have the case of there's a lot in that verse, and we've been focusing on this one part, the sea of glass, that I was going to tell you about. But there's actually some other stuff in there, too. For one thing, there were living creatures in that scene. And we're going to get to these. Maybe, you've, have you heard of these, like the, the lion and the calf and everything? Anyway, we'll, we'll get to them in a second. But it's good to know here, as they're introduced, that, that, that they symbolize divine providence and heavenly love protecting the deeper levels of our minds while we go through chaotic or confusing changes on lower levels. They're a symbol of that protection. And Swedenborg talks about it in Apocalypse Explained, number 258. And he says uh, that, that they are a symbol of this ongoing divine care. He says, by the four living creatures, which are cherubim, in case you wanted to know, is meant the Lord's divine providence, lest the former heavens should suffer harm by the remarkable change about to take place, and that afterwards everything might be done according to order. Isn't that interesting? I mean, maybe it's not, but to me, you'd think, okay, God's going to do some big changing in the spiritual world. Okay, heaven's going to be fine. Heaven is heaven. But no, he's saying he has to take steps. God has to take steps to protect heaven, because just like here, if you were going to, you know, knock down part of your house and put an addition on it, you've got to put down a drop cloth, and you've got to put down tarps, and you've got to protect, you know? That's just the way things are if you're making these big changes. Also, and we're gonna. We're, don't worry. We're gonna talk so much more about those living creatures. You guys are probably already like, oh, can we be done this show already? Nope, we can't. We got more to talk about. But let's move on now to some features, creature features, which are that they have tons of eyes. Those creatures have more eyes than they're supposed to have. And Swedenborg says that's like the divine wisdom watching over our process and giving us ways to believe and understand. The eyes being a symbol of that understanding. And in case you didn't notice, they're packed in with extra wings even more wings than an eagle should have, and that is power and protection from spiritual truth in the Word. Wings are spiritual truths since all real understanding is formed from them. Real understanding sees in the light of heaven. Now, if you think about the perspective that a flying creature has, how it can understand the landscape and the terrain so much more, so too with us. When we gain these spiritual truths, we can see life from such a higher vantage point, okay? Those are a couple of pointers about the animals, but overall, remember, they symbolize providence. And Swedenborg talks about this in Secrets of Heaven 9509, when he says, The watchful providence of the Lord's is depicted by the four living creatures. The four living creatures symbolize goodness emanating from the Lord under a variety of appearances, guarding and protecting against the admittance of anything but a goodness marked by love for the Lord or by love for one's neighbor. So only letting, like a membrane in a cell, only letting through the things that are about love and good. However, that still doesn't explain, like, okay, I can get it, uh, these living things are these protecting, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, um, protecting sort of uh, images or symbols of of God uh, and, and God's power. But why these particular animals? We, we got a weird subset of animals here. How, how did they get to make the final cut. We're going to find that out in the explanation of Revelation 4-7. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, 
the third living creature had a face like a human being, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The Lord protected the higher heavens using four aspects of the divine truth in the Word. Power and effect, affection and defense, wisdom, understanding and providence. Even there, there's order and sequence. It's not just, okay, I'll protect heaven. It's, I got to protect heaven as we go through this with specifics. Okay, so which of those creatures are those things? What does each one mean? We're going to get into it right now, beginning with the lion, right? So we've got this four, this strange combination of four animals, like a weird superhero team, but there's meaning to it. The lion is our spirit being protected by strong truth coming from the Lord's powerful love for us. You can see that a lion is a symbol of power. It's a symbol often for God, and it's a, and the, 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 actually Swedenborg says the most powerful thing in the universe is truth. That's It has the power. And you can see this on, in a limited way in our lives, but when you get down to the spiritual essence of it, truth is that protecting power. Think about if you know you had some people riding up to you on their bicycles, menacing you, something like that. If you had a lion suddenly hop out, yeah, to protect you, that's a pretty good feeling. All right, lion is a, is a strong buddy to have. But, and so the next one's even stronger. We got go from the lion to the baby cow. <laughs> so how is that? I get the lion, but why not just a cow, but like a baby cow, a calf? Well, that's our spirit being protected by innocence and by neighborly love in our lives. It's not just the big and the strong. There is this restorative um presence that brings us close to God in these soft, little, innocent interactions and and feelings of love that we can have, symbolized by this calf. And remember, the eyes and the wings are these extra features that we talked about before. So we've we've got our animals. The theme is it's animals that protect. And so we go to the next one, which should fit our subset, and it ends up being the man. (laughs) So like you you couldn't even stay on the animal theme? Okay, so we have a man. Why is a man showing up in there? Swedenborg says, The man is a symbol of our spirit being protected by the gift of wisdom, that a man can correspond to wisdom, and that wisdom is the ability to put good ideas into life. And so this is the wisdom. If God gives us this right path to walk on, that's the greatest protection from all kinds of things that try to eat away at us because you have this sense of purpose. You have this sense of, uh, of duty and morality. There's just this wisdom that protects. And that's what this guy is like. And then finally, we've got our eagle, our four-winged eagle. And that's our spirit being protected. Again, all these are protection-based, but this one by a heavenly rationality, which can believe in divine providence. So only through this lifting up by spiritual truths can we actually believe in something like divine providence. That if we didn't have these concepts, you just think everything's chaos, nothing's any good, right? So the eagle is a symbol of we learn certain things that allow us to have these moments of like, oh wait, I see how it's all, it could all be okay. So those are the four animals, and that's uh, pretty much all the characters that we have in here. However, in our final section, we're going to be looking at not just who's there, but what they're doing. So let's take a look at part three. Because it's not just presence, it's also activity that's telling us certain things about the way that God is protecting in events, big 
and small all over. So we, in the last section we saw, okay, there's these different ways that God is looking out for us through power, through innocence, through wisdom, through rationality. But what what is the movement of all these things? Because the creatures aren't just sitting around. As we're about to see here, they're actually engaged in some pretty heavy praising. This is Revelation 4.8. The four living creatures, each individually having six wings about it. And they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The word unceasingly teaches that the Lord is God, and the Lord's protection through divine providence never stops for even a moment. So that praising is, this continual praising is this acknowledgement that God is continually there. And it doesn't seem like it, you know, you know, there's the cliche, I mean, that, that famous poem, Footprints, it seems like God's not there, God actually is there. Swedenborg says that even the times we feel most alone is when God is most present, ironically, uh, and that this, this praising is indicative of, that if we understood how, just how much divine care there is for us at all times, we'd feel like doing some praising as well. Uh, and so, but not to be outdone, that's what the animals were doing, right? They're praising all the time. The elders, you guys remember the elders, well, they were actually bowing down, and there was a reason for that too. We'll take a look at Revelation 4, 9 to 11. And when the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sat on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him who sat on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Acknowledging the truth that the Lord guides and provides for all things with love and wisdom, all the angels in heaven humble themselves in service to the Lord's compassionate judgment. They acknowledge that all of the wisdom they have comes from the Lord. Don't look at me. Look at the text. <laughs> so, all right, just so maybe I appeared in the middle of that. But the important thing is that you have this humility that the elders are displaying. Because you might think that even though God is not commanding people to bow down, that's not what God is. God is love and and wisdom is not domineering. But still, you could think that those elders might say, all right, well, so God has really been the number one deity around here for a long time. Maybe I have a shot at it this year or, or in a couple of years if God starts to slow down. But no, that there's this humility that they're showing voluntarily. And this is because humility is essential. This is Apocalypse Explained 291. Acknowledgement of the Lord as a source of all goodness and truth, and therefore of all understanding, wisdom, and happiness, is not possible except in people who are in a humble state. When we are humble, we are removed from our own self-centeredness. And throughout his works, up and down, the thing that he says is the most toxic to all spiritual growth is this self-centeredness. So the more we can get pulled away from that, ironically, the the, the happier we are, the happier ourselves are, the less we're self-obsessed and co- constantly trying to be better and, and, and greater than everyone else. So this humility is super important, and so these elders are bowing down. And they, even in our own lives, remember we talked about the elders symbolizing something in us, that part of us can bow down as well. So we have a little illustration of that. 
so the bowing down symbolizes if we can open to a higher perspective during the upheavals of life, we can gain a humble acknowledgement and trust that the Lord is wisely guiding everything. Because if you save it up in the, the easy times, you, you practice this like, okay, God's in charge, it's all right. God's in charge, it's all right. And you put that trust in. Then when things actually get tough, which they do, you have this, this system that can spring for you there. And this humility, ah, it's okay. You got it. And that makes you a lot happier. Trust me, I have plenty of experience on the other side of not trusting. Never made me much happier uh, at all. So the elders represent these higher thoughts in us that, that, that um, show reverence to the divine and say, no, this, there is something greater that's going on here. But, and and they're, they're giving thanks in, in that passage. But what's the nature of that giving thanks? You know, you, you can say, oh, thanks so much. Really, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it. Is that like the the limits of of thanks? Swedenborg says that this particular gratitude these elders are showing is not just general, like a like a Hallmark card. This is there's a particular uh, what he calls glorification. That this is a type of thanks that requires specific elements. We're going to look at those in Swed- in Swedenborg's Apocalypse Explained two eighty eight. Glorification of the Lord is acceptance and heartfelt acknowledgement that the Lord is the source of all goodness and all truth, and so of all understanding, wisdom, and happiness. This is what giving thanks means in the spiritual sense. What heartfelt acknowledgement means is acknowledgement rising out of a life of love. In the word, a heart symbolizes love, and love is living according to the Lord's commandments. When we are living a life like that, it is a glorification of the Lord, which is an acknowledgement in our hearts that the Lord is the source of all goodness and truth. So it's not just thank you, it's hey, I'm going to go out and do what you are. You know, God is the desire to help the human race. So the way to say thank you to God is to go out there and help someone, go out there and make somebody's life better. Sounds good, right? And you might be saying, Okay, yeah, all goodness and truth, you're saying that, but that's not the way that life feels. Life feels chaotic, it doesn't feel like I have anyone there with me looking over. Isn't that what we'd we'd all want, you know, with everything difficult that we go through? The idea of having your, your, your best friend that's full of infinite love and wisdom taking care of you, you have a mentor or, or, or guardian taking you through this, of course, we want that, but it's done, it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't always at times, but usually it doesn't. And Swedenborg acknowledges that, and he compares the chaos in life to actually a lumberyard. And this is Secrets, uh, our Spiritual Experiences, 3724. He says, The providence of the Lord in the lowest things appears so confused and scattered. Lowest things being like the physical level where we are like the materials brought together from diverse sources for the erection of a great palace that have been calculated by the architect, acquired, and then thrown together in different piles, which are then fashioned and fitted to make the palace. Now, no one can see at all just from the piles such a palace would be the result, except for the architect. Yet the single items have been numbered and are ready to put in place. So no matter how much you feel like my life is a pile of rubble. Like there's, this is just, you can't live in this. There's just materials strewn everywhere. It's a disaster. Mm-mm. Every piece is going to be part uh, of this wonderful life in the future. That's the promise. Divine providence is leading us and leading through every event with this special preparation, making sure that no matter what we go through, 
even if it's tough, even if it's not the thing that God would want us to have to do if the world was perfect, still, that can be a part, that can be something that's used for the heavenly home that we're all headed towards. So, that that's the promise. And that's the promise we're saying in these strange pictures from the book of Revelation, that these this bizarre vision that John has is actually telling us that. So, with that in mind, let's take a look at these images one more time. I'm just going to give you some music. It'll be relatively short, but just meditate on it, vibe on it, and see if you feel anything or anything comes to you with you know it in mind that this is telling us about this sort of heavenly peace. that the vision's over but and i don't even know if john hey look at that i'm i'm in john's vision uh <laughs> pretty cool right um i don't even know if at the time he understood what he was seeing but you know through uh through this knowledge of correspondences we can know what it is and see that it's something that doesn't just speaking to him it's speaking to all of us and we learned a lot about it today so let's do our customary wrap up so that we don't forget what we learned. So even though the story in Revelation 4 seems fantastic, maybe abstract, maybe bizarre, we learn that it's using symbolism to describe a very immediate, tangible process. It's telling us the story of how the divine carefully prepares and puts everything in order before a change takes place. The lamps, the robes, everything, even down many-eyed animals is describing something about the interactions between the divine and our hearts and minds, both on an individual level and for big changes that affect the human race. The takeaway is hope, that even when things seem confusing or chaotic or devastating, we can trust that there's an unlimited intelligence and love arranging for seeing and providing the best possible future to come. So that's the message. That's what we're talking about. That, that whole throne room scene with all the elders and everything else that's going on in there, it's, it's communicating in a word, hope, and in another word, trust, and in another word, peace. That's what it's doing, all right? And one final insight that I wanted to share with you all, you know, we talked about going full circle. We talked about in the beginning, cells and their division mirrors the stuff that's going on with us spiritually. Well, if you look at cells, an actual cross-section of cells, everything 
uh, every single cell is going through different processes at different times. It's not all in unison. So some of us are just hanging out in interphase, not a lot is going on, while other people are in metaphase, are in prophase, are in these, these huge upheavals in life. So we can, when, when things are going smooth for us, reach out to the people who need it, and then they can do the same for us, and, and we can do the same for others. That's, that's how it works. I think that's so cool. Thanks to our friend Jing Jing Yang for that photo. And, uh, you know, you can look at life on the physical plane to learn about the spiritual. We're all just these little cells going through our little changes. It's going to be okay. We're growing and changing and life is good. So that's our show. Thank you so much, everyone, for watching. And if you already watched, we owe you for that. But if you would help us a little bit more, we'd really appreciate it. Could you like and subscribe? If you're not already subscribed, give this a thumbs up. If you did like it at all. And the most exciting thing, I don't know if you heard about the most exciting party on the internet right now, but Patreon. We are on Patreon. We launched it last week, and we've. I'm so grateful to everyone who's joined up. It's been awesome to see people coming in there, seeing the, the extra content, uh, interacting. We have our own little sort of chat in there. It's super fun. This is a way, if you haven't heard of it, that you can support this show, help make it happen, and we can say thank you in a structured way. So essentially, you sign up to maybe to give us a dollar for an episode. So every time we put out an episode, you donate a dollar. And if you sign up for that, you become a patron. And we give you, it's not, you know, the best content is this show, but we give you as a little token of our thanks, uh, behind the scenes stuff. For example, this week, you're going to see Chelsea and Matt talking about how the house of the mind was created. And it went from an, a, a concept to a cardboard storyboard to you're going to see the whole process on the computer just to show a little bit of how the thought goes in. There's the other content on there. There's a visit to the archives, a writing of a song. We'd love to have you come and hang out. You can just try it too, because you can sign up for one week, you know, and and you don't. If you don't like it, you just cancel your payment, and you never have to pay uh, again. So it's a way for us to uh, say thanks for for your support and uh, and in whatever way you've been supporting, even if it's just watching what we do and telling a friend. Thank you so much. This thing wouldn't have gone anywhere without you. So uh, as a further thank you, we're going to take your questions uh, right now, just like we do. So let's see what's, this is a confusing show, a lot of stuff going on. So I'm going to take five of your great questions here and, and see uh, if I can shed any more confusion on it. Here's the first one. Ellen, how will we recognize our loved ones when we are in the afterlife? What age do we present ourselves in spirit? Love recognizes love. So Swedenborg says that when we first get to the other world, that we do look a lot like ourselves, but then we change. We get younger. Swedenborg says you approach the prime of life, uh, and you begin to change. How you look changes. Um, you become, rather than just something here, you know, how we look is shaped by genetics or, or like um, our choice of haircut, that kind of thing. But there, it's actually shaped by the deeper parts of your, of your soul you know, uh, that, that if you are, your kindness shows in what you look like, you know, your love, your wisdom show in what you look like. So we begin to look different. However, you never have a problem recognizing people. Sometimes it seems in near-death experiences and other things that you see people as they were initially, but but also what you really know about someone isn't even how they look, it's, it's who they are inside. And that, that love, as I said, love recognizes love in the other life. And Swedenborg, he talks about meeting all kinds of people that he knew previously in life, and he never says he has a trouble recognizing any of them. So whatever exact mechanism it is, um, it's easy for us 
to recognize. And he says that people who go to the other side meet their family and friends, everyone who's passed on before. He never talks about people not being able to find each other, because just thinking about someone there can bring their presence to you. So that's what Swedenborg says. It's a great question. I hope that makes sense. Let's look at the next one. Michael, since we are going to heaven, are we going to see everything, even the throne room? I think, I mean, so that, Swedenborg does talk about seeing things like that in heaven. He talks about seeing composite animals like the one in Revelation. Now, this particular throne room is a symbol of a process that God does, so that that vision that John had was was like uh, a rendering of that, and I'm sure that that's something that occurs to people. And I, my sense is, from what Swedenborg describes about heaven, is it's not like a lot of red tape. Like, it's not, oh, no, you, you can't see something like that. If we want to see, it's, I don't know if there actually is, like, a throne room that God is in, you know, but, but there is, that is a part of the truth about the nature of God, so you can see that represented. I'm sure if you were there and, like, I want to see the throne room, what it means, that you would get, get shown it. That seems to be how it is. Or if you weren't ready, they'd say, here's what you need to, to learn before you're ready, because otherwise you couldn't handle the throne room, which is, like, some things are actually so high-powered that we have to work our way up to them, but, it, but eventually, yes. But it seems like, you know, that's probably something that you can do, and, and I say sky's the limit as far as what we can see, because God, God is interested in bringing us ever, ever closer and closer, so that would include revealing all of the, the mysteries there. And I think, yeah, it'd be cool. Would it look anything like these paintings? Who knows? All right, so let's take a look at the... Thanks, Michael. Let's look at the, the third question. Nick, Nick, are the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit present or symbolic entities in the throne room? We did a show called How to Understand the Trinity. And there it goes. So take a look at that episode to see Swedenborg's explanation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being three aspects of the same God. That There's the underlying essence, which is the Father, which, is, you know, how it says no one has seen the Father, because we can't even comprehend the underlying essence. But but the Son, Jesus Christ, that's God manifested in a form that we can understand, and then the Holy Spirit is the actions coming out. So really, that God seated on the throne there, that is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's all of them, because that's, that's God, that's the manifestation of the underlying essence, and then the actions proceeding out is all this thunder and lightning, everything that's being done. So does that make sense? Again, check out our episode, How to Understand the Trinity. But it's great, great question. Uh, I'm on the semi-roll. I mean, I'm having some answers to these. Let's take a look. We've we got another one. I think this is the fourth one. So let's, let's see here. Linda, is this earth plane for conditioning of our spirit to gain maturity? Yeah, and I think I would even go even a little farther to say it's it's an essential phase in, in development that Swedenborg likens it to the womb, that it has all the characteristics here that you need to grow up. We, I, we talked, um, I think I talked last episode about children in heaven. Um, oh no, that was a, a, another little interview that I was doing about children in heaven, that even if you die young in this world and, and go to heaven, you still have to grow and develop there that you can't skip that phase, and that actually this this world is ideally suited to to our growth into the people that, that we need to be. So this earth plane is certainly for conditioning of the spirit. That's why we have to put up with it. If it wasn't doing something useful, you know, there's no way we'd all have to slog through this life. Just kidding, this life is great at times, but at times it's hard. So um, it's only because it, it does this essential process for our spirits uh, that that we're going through it in the first place. So yeah, we gain conditioning, maturity, and, and also get a chance to, in freedom, choose 
you know, choose the, the, the things that are of, of love and wisdom if we so want to. So let's, that's a great question. Let's do one more. This is Eric. How many levels of heaven are there? If someone goes deeper into his, her heaven, does he feel a greater degree of love there? Yes. Greater degree of love for sure. That Swedenborg says we are perfected to eternity in love and wisdom. So that there's, there's never an end to the deeper and deeper love. And that even as you move more centrally into your heaven, you find deeper love. You get, you get fuller and fuller. And as far as how many levels, Swedenborg describes three. And that these levels of heaven are levels of the mind. That we can either open to God just in a general way, or we're open to God in a specific way, or we're open to God in, with every single fiber of our being. Right? That's basically the progression. It's like, oh, just a general on, on the level of just or, an organ, you know, like say your heart. You, know, you just think about the heart as a single thing. Okay, so that's one level. You get more specific. You think about it on the tissue level, like all these little parts that make it, if all those little parts are open. This is a weird Swedenborgian metaphor, but this is how he talks about it. Then that's the second level. The third level will be like every single cell open, like to the smallest degree, everything. So those are the three levels of heaven. But even though you're, you're within just those three, each one of those can expand forever. So you can be in the third level of heaven, but yet you're still learning and growing and, and go, moving towards infinity forever. Swedenborg says that that's the joy of life is you never, just like we're here in this world, we don't stop growing. You know, you, you're, you're a kid, and then you go on. You guys know the stages of life. But there's nothing, we're always progressing. So it would be weird to get to a place where we didn't, don't progress. He, there, it's not that our bodies progress and grow old, but our minds and hearts get better and better and better and cooler forever. That's how I've heard it told anyway. Thanks, everybody, so much for hanging out. Really appreciate you uh, digging into this complex topic with me, and hopefully you got something out of it that you're going to be able to, you know, love and understand, and we'll make life better for you. Next week, it's our 10 questions show. So this is where we take questions from the audience, uh, It's uh, and we, we take the time over the course of the week to really research and get some good answers to them, so it'll be posted up on Monday. It's not a live chat show like this show, so you can just leave your comments in the the place below, but we put a lot of effort into really giving you some solid answers, way better than the answers that I just gave here to those questions. So hopefully you'll join us for that. Thanks again, everyone, for for making this work, and it's been a joy talking to you, and uh, I'll see you through the, the video next Monday. Swedenborg and Life is Amy Aquarola, Morgan Beard, Curtis Childs, Karen Childs, Matthew Childs, Alexa Cole, John Connolly, Cara Dom, Chris Dunn, Stuart Farmer, Ben Keyes, Reed McArdle, Chelsea Odner, Jonathan Rose, Shiloh Silverman, and Shada Sullivan.